Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 to 8. Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's uh, holy and iron word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us to worship you, to hear your word, and to, uh, to sing your praise. Um, and we do pray, Lord, you descend to us uh, in your spirit and teach us your word and uh, illuminate our hearts, our minds, change us uh, into the image of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I, I absolutely um, enjoyed... Um, spending last night just celebrating Christmas with you all. Um, and our events team, hospitality team, praise team just did a, a wonderful job just putting everything together for us. Can we give them a hand and thank them for, for yesterday? Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Um, highlight for me, I think, was uh, when we got to sing Joy to the World together and got to that my favorite part of that song where we say no more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found far as the curse is found far as the curse is found that hymn i don't know if you knew uh, was written by a hymn writer and minister named isaac watts he's the guy who wrote uh, when i survey the wondrous cross and he based it not actually on like a Christmas passage from the Bible. He based the hymn, Joy to the World, on Psalm 98. You know what Psalm 98 is about? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Okay. Uh, sing praises to the Lord with lyre, sound of melody. Why? Because he's bringing his judgment down to earth. Uh, when, when it says, joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king, turns out Isaac Watts was talking more about Jesus' second coming than not his first coming. Joy to the world is about his second coming, not his first coming. All right. um, it's when he comes to bring his final judgment to the earth and right every wrong. 
fix every injustice, um, make every crooked line straight. And it says in Revelation, when, when, when John envisions that, receives a vision of, of the end, these most comforting words um, from verse 4. When Jesus does come with his judgment, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Notice it doesn't say when his people are tearful and, and, and weeping and grieving, he will come alongside them and weep with them, kind of like what we've been instructed to do, weep with those who weep. That no longer applies here because there's no more reason for weeping or grieving. And death shall be no more. And that's both in the sense of physical death being no more, wages of sin being no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, any kind of pain. No loss, no threats against you, no harm, no trauma to your body or your brain. Why? How can this be? It tells us, for the former things have passed away. Okay. The former things that used to hold such a grip on you, even seemingly permanently holding a grip on you, they lose their grip on you permanently. Uh, turns out that that incident, that hurtful person, that injury, that, that addiction, that habitual sin, um, they were not permanent after all. They were not a part of your permanent identity. They were simply part of the fading world. And with the world, they will all pass away. So Psalm 98 and Isaac Watts says, joy, joy to the world. Let earth receive this king because he's bringing uh, something completely new to, to, to restore everything that's been uh, broken. That's the vision we're looking at today. I want to uh, break this down into two parts. And I want you to see two big pictures from this vision today, all right? Uh, first, I want to see with you uh, the true nature of what Jesus brings at his second coming. What is this new, new reality he's ushering in, the true nature of that? And second, having considered the true nature of it, how do we get it? Or how do we get into it, all right? So what is the true nature of Jesus' second coming and what he's bringing, and also how do we get into it? All right, so point number one, let's think about the true nature of what Jesus brings. It says in verse one, that Je uh, not Jesus, John, uh, sees a new heaven and new earth, and the reason is because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And, and this is referring to the one we're in right now. This is the first heaven and first earth. And heaven and earth symbolizing just everything in this universe, encompass this there's nothing left out of it. That's what heaven and earth is representing. Even the sea was no more. And that's just not referring to the, the body of water, right? The, the symbolism there is, the, if, when you look at earlier parts of Revelation, we've seen how the evil forces, the beast, for example, arising, the dragon arising out of the, the sea. Um, that sea, right, that sort of primeval, ancient source of evil, no more. And the enemy will no longer bring persecution or tribulation to, to God's people. That's the new heaven and new earth. And notice the word new is used uh, twice to emphasize how new it is. And uh, the significance of that is in the Greek, the word translated new here, it's a very distinct and important uh, word. It's the word kainos, 
which is not how we usually the word, use the word new or what we mean by the word new. When we use the word new, we use it more in the temporal sense, something new coming after the old and replacing the old. So for example, uh, the iPhone 15, the new iPhone 15, that hope maybe will, did I say hope? Uh, one day will come out replacing the old iPhone 14, right? If you can afford it. <laughs> A new car in 2023 replacing the old car in 2022. A new house that replaces the old. New clothes that replace the old. It's something that comes after the old thing in this sort of temporal, chronological manner, right? That's kind of what we used to, what, what, what we use the word new for. Um, in the Greek, there's another word for that. It's not kainos, it's neos. It's, it's where we get the word neo. Um, Intentionally, though, John does not use that word here. He uses the word kainos instead of neos, and kainos is new not in this temporal sense, in this chronological sense, but new in the qualitative sense, okay, qualitative sense. Uh, this new heaven and new earth and everything, therefore, within it, everyone in it will be a qualitatively new thing. This utter transformation of reality as we know it Transformation of humanity uh, as we know it. Divinely new, eternally new, ultimately qualitatively new. Kainos. Okay. We all like new things, don't we? Right. Uh, we all know that feeling of just old things losing their attraction over time, right? Whether it's an electronic device, our cars, clothes, hairstyle from a decade ago. Um, eventually, they start feeling old, and we have this desire, and it's often stimulated or fueled by like commercialism, but nevertheless, an internal desire to fill our lives always with a sense of newness. We want to experience new things. We want to travel to new places. We want to have different life experiences, maybe uh, switch work environments, uh, work with different people, develop different friendships, move to a different city. But whenever we encounter these new things, uh, they somehow inevitably start to, to feel old again. And so there's, there's two things we can say about that at first. One is, this is a God-given desire we all have. Our desire for something that doesn't grow old, <laughs> something that doesn't decay, Something that doesn't expire but constantly feels new. Why? Well, Scripture tells us why. Because you and I have this soul that's wired for eternity, God's eternity. Ecclesiastes says you were made with a heart that's set on eternity, that's targeted towards eternity. And therefore, nothing less than that, something eternally qualitative will ever satisfy so yes, that desire you have for that newness, for kainos, it's a good God-given desire. I think it's important that you don't brush that aside too quickly when you desire newness. Uh, don't brush that aside as if you're just discontent. You're just ungrateful with what you have. Sometimes it is that, but underneath, deep underneath that, there is a God-given desire for a newness that does not expire. And for you to not sit well with things that do. That's how God made us. 
That is what you are. So acknowledge that. The Bible is giving you a diagnosis of your nature, all right? You are an eternal creature longing for this unfading newness, and that is what you are. That's how you're made. Now, here's, here's the second thing that has to follow from that, however, and that is that desire you will never satisfy on this side of heaven. Because everything on this side of heaven has been corrupted by sin that breaks things down, that causes death and decay, right? Everything you touch, everything I touch gets old. Our wealth, our achievements, our health, our relationships even, our bodies. And, and there really, truly, there's nothing uh, that's kainos under the sun, truly new under the sun. It's what our free choice brought into this world. The curse of sin brought everything to futility, making everything old, eventually dead. It's not what's meant to be. This, this therefore, nagging feeling that we don't want to be stuck in this place, stuck with the old. We don't want to be living in a world where everything breaks down, our food breaks down, our clothing breaks down, our skin breaks down. And, and we do try to keep up our efforts with upkeeping, right? With refrigeration, with uh, holiday shopping, with cosmetics. We want to cover up what appears to be old or sustain things as long as we possibly can, prolong them, but really it's just that. It's prolonging it just a little bit more and perhaps even the illusion just a little bit more that we're still in the new. When in reality, we're just delaying the process of decay, the process of uh, getting old. And the first question is, have you come to grips with this? Uh, do you know that this life we live now is a life of death and decay, um, destined to end? And that, as the wise man said, all is chasing after vanity, therefore. It's all a mist that vanishes at dawn. And, and still, there's something inside us that says, that's not okay. There's something in us that naturally cries out against that, isn't there? Right? We rage against, not just the dying of the light and, and rage against death, but also rage against the wrinkling of the skin. We rage against the outdatedness of our phones. We rage against the irrelevance of our fashion. We rage against an uh, old and shabby house. We rage against cars that break down. We rage against... Our bodies that get sick, get weak. So we're stuck with a dilemma here, aren't we? Given those two, two observations, right? Your hearts are wired for eternity. Nothing in this world is eternal. Your deepest desire is for kainos. Nothing in this world is kainos, right? Everything you touch gets old. So here are two things that follow from that as Right, rational, reasonable beings, as you deduct from that, right? Here's here's what we must conclude, and nobody has said it better than C.S. Lewis. Or here's here's his quote once again. You've probably heard this before. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. That does not prove that your desire is a, is a fraud. 
It means earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy you, but only to stimulate it to suggest the real thing. That's point number one he makes. Your inner innate desire for this never-ending satisfaction in the new, that is your heart's cry for something that nothing in this world can qualitatively satisfy. Maybe temporarily satisfy, right? But not qualitatively satisfy. But that does not mean that your heart is desiring for the wrong thing, that you're malfunctioning. It's the opposite. The object of desire is there. But you just might be drinking from the wrong well. And that follows... Uh, that, that follows with the next point that Lewis makes. Quote, So I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after I die, until I leave this old world. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object, main object of life, to press onto that country and help others do the same. And of course, by this true country he's talking about, what John is seeing in this vision, the new heaven and the new earth. Kingdom of God, come down. Will of God being done without resistance, without disobedience. So you see, the, the, the vision of the end, according to the Bible, is really just an echo, in a sense, of your deepest and internal longing and desire that we all have. We all have it. Even when my children cry when their toy breaks, they're echoing this longing for a world where things don't break. We all have this desire for this eternal kainos. So don't underestimate what verse 5 is therefore saying. Write this down, it says, for these words are trustworthy and true. What does that mean? He's saying, don't you see, this is what resonates with your soul, with who you are and with what you are. This is trustworthy and true. These are the words. This is the vision that comes from your very maker. That's why. Trust him. Trust his diagnosis. Trust his words. Do you? Do you really? Do you understand that's what you're wired for. Uh, it says that Jesus will bring us that very real, eternal, quality, qualitatively new reality at his second coming. And that is when we will be finally be satisfied. It's when that, that true nature of new creation meets our true nature as we were meant to be. And we will see that when God does return, unlike us, Unlike us, everything God touches, it becomes new. That's why we want this. Do you want this? Do, do you identify this in your heart's longing? Because that's the only way we're going to connect to the true nature of this. Because, as it turns out, the true nature of this is hardwired into every believer's soul, every believer's faith, every believer's hope. And it will confirm for you also that it will therefore take the true nature of God to accomplish this. His uncompromising holiness, justice, righteousness, equity, peace, goodness, love to make this reality come true. He has to touch everything in heaven and earth. Because only then we will have new heaven and new earth, kainos, a new and glorious morn dawning on us. Only when 
God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his peace, his love touches everything. Verse 2 in our passage also tells us that this new reality will come to us like a grand new city. And the word city is often used to represent a kingdom in the Bible. It's coming down from heaven down to earth. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, and that verb would apply to God. God prepared this as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, real quick, I learned growing up in the church that when I die, I will go to heaven, I will meet the Lord, and that is the end. End of story. After I die, I will be in heaven with God forever and ever, worshiping him. True or false? False. It's not the whole truth. Now, before you think that PJ just turned pagan in the middle of his sermon, uh, hear, me, hear me out. Here's what the Bible is saying. When we die, we do go to a place called paradise or heaven, like Jesus told the thief on the cross. This day you will be with me in paradise, right? So our, our bodies do get buried in the grave, but we know that our souls will be with the Lord in heaven. All right? Is that the end? Clearly not. Not, not according to this. It says heaven will not remain this, this sort of purely heavenly thing in this heavenly realm. It says in our passage, heaven will come down, be united with the earth, united with a new earth, new heaven, new earth. It's called New Jerusalem. And it comes out of heaven from God down to where we are, down to the physical. And then there will be something like a wedding ceremony, the consummation of what's engaged to be forever, now becoming together forever. You see that? So the kingdom of God then, the new heaven, new earth, will be spatial, be physical, and eternal and spiritual at the same time. New earth. Earth. So here's the order. We die. And just to reiterate what we talked about on the Sunday on death, you will die, right? We're a young bunch, so I just need to remind you. <laughs> and then our souls enter paradise to be with the Lord. We have life after death. And then heaven comes down, consummates the new world, and we have life after, life after death in our resurrected bodies, in God's new heaven and new earth. We're not just going to be floating around... So that's the significance of this, right? We're not just going to be disembodied spirits, a bunch of like holy caspers floating around right, in heaven after we die. No, heaven turns out to be, the paradise turns out to be a waiting room. It's a VIP waiting room, but it's a waiting room, all right? It's exclusive, it's classy, elegant, all that, but it's a waiting room. It's not the destination. You're ready for the destination there. You're waiting for it. It's a waiting room. And then when Jesus returns, heaven comes down to earth, consummates new heaven, new earth, new earth. That's where we will be with God in our newly resurrected physical, physical bodies, like Jesus resurrected physically, and dwell with him there and dwell with one another, the saints, bodily, physically, tangibly, forever and ever. So think about the implication of that. 
right? How we will see each other face to face, how uh, we will hug, right? I think we'll be all. I think we'll be huggers in heaven, right? Here, I get it, right? Sometimes we just shake hands, or you don't want to even do that. That's that's fine. In heaven, we're gonna hug. We might even greet each other with a holy kiss, right? We will feast. We will play. We being as creative as you know, God made us, we will create, we will do art, we will have music, we will explore the galaxies, we will build and, and eternally, endlessly behold the, the, the wonder of God's new creation. I'm pretty sure somewhere in the galaxy, somewhere in the world, there's going to be like a single tree in the new heaven, new earth that would just captivate me and, and just... Be, be beautiful enough for me to sit in front of it and, and, and just behold this beauty for a million years. I'm sure I will find a tree like that in the new heaven and new earth, a glorious tree, maybe even a glorious blade of grass. And that's not even beholding the beauty of God himself for all eternity, face to face. Guys, we don't lose all the good that's here. We regain it and then some. That's the true nature of new heaven and new earth, what God is bringing down to us. All we lost, we regain. All that sad become untrue. That's why, that's why we sing joy, joy, joy to the world. The Lord is come. That's the true nature of it, all right? And if that's the true nature of it, and if that sounds amazing, right, the second question you have to ask, how do you get it? How do you get into it? That's the second point. And I think we can start with verse 6. It starts with understanding the meaning of these three very important words. It is done. It is done. Uh, This is a very crucial, crucial first step in getting into this. Knowing that this ushering in of the new world and the new you. Okay, please hear me on this. Ushering in the new you. It's not up to you. You'll never get that done. It's not up to your next new job. Uh, it's not up to your next relationship, your next academic degree, your, your next house, car, clothes, your next great escape from the nagging feeling that things are getting old, I need something new. The one who says it is done gives you that, not you. The one who says, I am here making all things new, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, he's the one making all things new. He's the one that makes you forgiven, you're, you're debt-free, all your blemishes erased. He does that. He utters the words, it is done. He uttered the words, it is finished on the cross. Not you. You have to understand, nothing we ever achieve, nothing you ever complete, no amount of wealth you accrue, no amount of health you accomplish, will ever lead you to say, it is finished. It is done. I am complete. Everything you touch will get old. Only he can say that. Do you trust him like that? 
Do you let his words, these three words, on the cross at the end of the world, define your life's hope? Are you that kind of a believer, a believer who hopes in the Lord, not in yourself? You have to start with this, examining whether your true trust is really in the Lord Jesus Christ and whether you are, therefore, putting your whole faith in him. That's how you know you're in. That's how you know, that's how you know you're going to get in. It's not up to chance, guys. It's not, it's not some spiritual gamble. Maybe I have a good chance at getting in. No, it's a choice of your faith, of what you choose to focus on, what you put your trust in, you choose to devote your life to, what you make your aim and purpose in life, how you choose to define yourself and redefine yourself. Is it you, what you do, or is it Christ, what he's done? Like we were reminded in that song last night, and I love singing this with you. I love hearing your voices singing this. Do you boast in your tomorrow's gain? Tell me what is your life? What is all of your jobs and promotions your retirement plan and your academic degrees, your, your houses and cars and clothes, and what is all of that a mist that vanishes at dawn? Don't you see? Nothing you do in this life, accrue in this life, takes you into eternity. So how do you tap into then this glory that never fades, this eternal glory that is really worth giving your whole life to, put your whole trust in? All glory be to Christ. Christ our King. His rule, His reign, we will ever sing. So give Him all of your glory. In excelsis Deo. Do you believe that? Because that's how you get in. It, it also says He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And this is, if you recall, uh, appears in, in, in Revelation chapter 1. Alpha and Omega, and now appears in chapter 21, and that's intentional. The totality of history of the world falls under this reign of Christ because from him and to him and for him are all things, and it's on him to make all things new. It's on him to make you new. It's not on you. Are you resting in him that way? Are you receiving and resting in him alone as he is offered in the gospel? Because that's how we get in. With nothing in our hands. You don't come to Jesus. You don't come to the kingdom with, Lord, here are my promotions. Here are my houses in Atlanta. Here are my cars. Here's my academic degree. You only come with the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. That's all you need. That's how we get in. It's if you come thirsty for Christ. At the end of verse 6, it reiterates that. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You want something new, you want that newness to be so satisfying, so new, so complete that you will finally be able to rest and your thirst quenched. Don't look to yourself. Don't look to your job. Don't look to your money. Don't look to pleasures or entertainment. Don't look to people's recognition of how successful you've become. Don't look to anything you touch because 
that will only leave you thirsting for more. It will never be enough because this, this world that's passing away can always rob you of that and will. It will rob you of all those things. At best, these things are temporary fixes, temporary escapes to give you the illusion you're being made new. But it is an illusion. It's a delusion. You must look to Christ and Christ alone. Your desire is good. It's God-given desire. You want something eternally thirst-quenching, eternally new, kainos. And God is offering you to, to, to receive that, but you've got to turn to the right well. You've got to drink from the right well, God himself. And you've got to go to him, understanding he offers this to you by his grace alone, without payment without payment. Now, why does verse 7 call those of, cause those of us who embrace this and believe this conquerors? Here's why. Because believing this means you stand against the big three enemies that come against you and tell you you need to make a lot of payments to get this. The world, the devil, and the flesh. The three things that pull us towards this life of self-payments. Pay to justify your worth. Pay to justify your existence. Pay to redefine yourself and the new you. Recreate the new you. What do you pay with? Workaholism. Perfectionism. People-pleasing. Burnout. That's what you pay with. And repeat. You pay with your own striving. Striving physically, academically, vocationally, and relationally. You're out to justify your own existence and your self-worth with your own striving. But those who conquer this, those who win this battle, they don't lean on their own works, they lean on grace without payment. They lean on God's daily mercies like daily manna in the desert. They lean on God's strength every day and every day acknowledge their weakness and their need of Him. That's conquering. That's how Christians conquer. We don't conquer through strength. We, we conquer through weakness. We don't conquer through pride, but through humility, not with self-esteem, but self-forgetfulness. Not by being professional, just having it together, but being confessional. God, I don't have it together. That's conquering. Even if you are a sinner, even if you identify with some of the things in verse 8, you can live in a confessional way of life, live a changing way of life by God's grace, even now. And that's also how you know you're conquering. You experience glimpses of that change in the here and now. And, and even when it's not perfect, right, you're not in distress because you're not morally perfect, you're not religiously perfect, but because you're remaining thirsty for more of his grace. You know you're conquering. It's the needy who conquer. It's the thirsty who conquer. The only thing that would be asked of you for you to enter the kingdom of God is your neediness. That's how you conquer this world that says neediness sucks. Needing mercy sucks. Humility sucks. You conquer that by becoming God's people who imitate Christ in his humility 
receiving his mercies and finding that he loves. He loves those who are needy. He loves people with empty hands. He loves failures. He loves addicts. He loves broken people. And if you're going, that's so comforting to me, praise the Lord, you're in. If you're thirsting for him. I, I hope you see the, the practicality of, of just even hearing Jesus say, I am making all things new. He didn't say, I, I will make all things new. He says, I am. This means he's, he's already offering you to, to taste and see this and catch glimpses of this and experience this in the here and now. So as you continue to worship the Lord, as you continue to be here and have fellowship and pray and study God's word and be counseled in his word and experience measures of healing, restoration through his word and gain more wisdom through his word, you see new measures of his goodness in your life, new measures of joy entering, filling your heart. You will see new level of maturity in your character new power to resist the enemy, power to resist temptation, new power to cut off sexual sins, to live in holiness and purity, new fruits of the Holy Spirit, new measures of self-control, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, kindness, new priorities that push out old ones, and new habits that, that replace the, the bad uh, old ones. You, you see this in the here and now, even now, Gradually, little by little. And that's also a part of conquering. And you don't do this because you're so amazing and, and you're really determined to do this and you've made all sorts of resolutions to change yourself. No, because you are coming to God thirsty every day is how you experience this. You're coming to Him needy every day. No faith in yourself whatsoever, but all of your faith in your Lord and Savior, your King. That's how you make it. And if you conquer the world this way, it says in verse 7, you will receive this reassurance. God saying, I will be your God, you will be my son, you will be my child. Your reassurance of God being your loving Heavenly Father, you being his eternal child, that comes when you're needy, to the degree that you are needy, to the degree that you are reliant on him and thirsty for him. If you parents, I think you should try this with your children, and I and I do this now and then, uh, before bedtime with my kids. I ask them, "Hey, do you know that Daddy loves you?" Uh, yeah. How do you know that Daddy loves you? And listen to what they say. Uh, I have never heard my kids say, "I know you love me because I I brush my teeth when you told me to." I stopped screen time when you told me to stop. I was behaving well at school. I did all of these things for you. That's how I know you love me. What do they list off? What I've done for you. What I've done for you. Is that your standard of measuring God's love for you? Or do you list off what you've done for him? Or do you list off just how needy you are of his mercy, of his grace, of his help, of his kindness, of his forgiveness. Is that how you know? 
That's how we know. He says, I will be your God, you will be my son, my child. And what a, what a reminder that is of, of also what Christmas is about. The reason why he gave us his son, why he gave his son to mankind, was to make mankind his sons. There's nothing greater than, there's no, there's no greater love than that. There's no greater gift that you can ever receive. And nothing as kindos as that. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the English uh, Presbyterian minister, he, he once said, the all, and he says, I, I say this reverent, with reverence. He's saying this carefully. He's saying, the almighty God himself can do no more for you than this. Make you his child. And with that, give you everything you possibly can. Do you take comfort in that? That God is a delightful giver, that he is so good, and you will never miss out on anything as long as you know you are his, you're his beloved. And he delights, he delights in meeting the needs of his children. He, he loves it when his children would come to him needy and not turn to anyone else. And he will never be weary of you. He, he will never... Uh, tell you something I tell my kids now and then. Give me some alone time. Right? Daddy needs alone time. Daddy needs quiet time. God will never turn you away like that. He will never be weary. He will welcome you. And I hope you find that comforting as well and tap into that as well because that's how you know you're getting in. It's through your neediness, your thirst. Guys, I want to recommend something to all of you, especially those of you who have been in church for a long time. You've been a Christian a long time. All right. For a while, for a good while, stop asking yourself whether you believe in God. Start asking yourself whether you thirst for Him. Do I thirst for Him? Do I desire Him? Stop believing in Him. Start desiring him. Examine whether you thirst for him. That's true belief. Because that's true belief that gets you in. Not thinking, yeah, he exists. And he's almighty and the devil knows that. But he doesn't thirst for God, the living God. Later on, we're going to sing... Um, Angels we have heard on high for our song of response. Um, there's a part in there that goes, Shepherds, why, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Why the gladsome tidings be? Which inspire your heavenly song when you're under Roman occupation and persecution, living in poverty? Why this jubilee in the here and now? And, and I hope you remember as you sing that, we know why. We know why the Jubilee. We know what inspires our heavenly song. Not only is heaven coming down to earth, it's coming down to earth for me, to bring me into it. And Jesus has come down for me, and he will come again for me. And, and I, my soul knows that well, because I thirst for him. So, Gloria, Gloria in excelsis. Remember that. Okay. E even in your lowest moment in the here and now, whatever it is that you're 
experience. Even in the lowest moment, you have a reason to hope in the highest of all glories, the glory of God that's with you now, that's going to come to you again to, to bring you home. And because he is so adamant, the Heavenly Father is so deeply in love with you, he will never let anything separate you from that. And I hope you celebrate that this Christmas. Celebrate like, like Isaac Watts during Christmas season, not just the first coming of Christ, but his second coming as well. Let's pray. Lord, you, you know us so well. You know us so intimately and truly. And, and so thank you for revealing to us once again the state of our hearts, our desires, and Lord, uh, how you have set out to satisfy us, to restore us, heal us, and forgive us. Um, and, and that this season really is about that. Lord, um, to help us... Uh, see that you are not just an object of our belief, but our object of desire and, and hope and longing. And, and Lord, as we find all of that longing met in your Son, Jesus Christ, um, Lord, we pray you will help us uh, prepare more room for him in our lives. Help us to, to, to change, to, to make new decisions, help, help us bear new fruit and Choose your holiness and righteousness, faithfulness and kindness and gentleness and all these things, not because of what we are or who we are, but because of Christ in us. Because he is making all things new. So Lord, let that hope uh, keep us from our disillusionment or disappointment in this world. Raise us up again daily uh, to feed upon his mercy and grace meeting us in our, in our very present trouble, in our time of need. And Lord, as often as we cry out to you, as we even mourn before you, um, Lord, help us to hear your promise to wipe away our every tear and that you're coming soon to do just that. Lord, we thank you for that. And we, we love you for that. Thank you for first uh, loving us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.